Hi, and welcome to Inglewood Presbyterian Church in Kirkland, Washington. We are a church for the neighborhood, whether you're a local neighbor or from far away, all are welcome here. We are pleased to present to you our weekly Sunday sermons. Our head pastor is James Cuman, and you can find more information about us on our website at inglewoodpc.org. Scripture today is Matthew 2, 1 through 12, as James said, appearing familiar story. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. All Jerusalem with him, and assembled all the chief priests and scribes of the people. He inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will be shepherd my people who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I may, that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream to not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. This is the word of the Lord. This this story, this part of, of your word to us, Lord God, is very familiar to us. And so all the more do we pray that you would speak through these words to us. That we see something, Lord God, of your Lord, and experience the beginnings of the freedom from fear that you invite us into. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, you had a little preview with uh, the exercise with the kids for glory, but I'm still interested in a little word association, and this is the beauty of in-person Worship is we can do things like this that are interactive, but curious to hear from you, when you hear the word glory, what are some other words 
or images that come to mind, and we have masks on, so you're just going to have to belt it out uh, so the rest of us can hear. But what are some <coughs> words, ideas, phrases, pictures, mental images that come to mind when you hear the word or see it in print, the word Lord? Lots light. of light. Okay, light? Light? Um, basically, someone Okay, somebody shining and flying. Okay, good. Other words or pictures or images, associations? Radiance. Okay, radiance, yeah. Joy. Okay, joy, yeah. Good. Anything else? Gold leaf circles and paintings. Say again? Gold leaf circles and paintings. Oh, yeah, gold leaf circles and paintings. The halo, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, hopefully not to one side. Yeah, good. Okay, the images of picture of the sun that will often have like rays coming out or really bright light with rays coming out, right? Notice something interesting. In English, and I can't vouch for, you know, so our first speaking friends and those of you who speak other languages can tell me later if other languages don't have this, but certainly in English, did you hear that for almost all of us, when we hear the word glory, we think of images of light, right? That's, that's our first immediate go-to. And I want to suggest that then when we read the scripture or we hear it read or we're just talking and something like, glory be to God, might I suggest that the image of light, that our association of glory with light does not help us greatly in getting the full impact, it gets us partway there, but not getting the full impact uh, from Scripture when the primary meaning of the word glory in the Old Testament Bible is weight, impact, things that matter, things that are substantial. And you hear even in these words that I'm using in English, we have that vocabulary in English, right? Matter, stuff, like it's the, the things that exist, right? Things that matter to us have stuff for us, have weight, right? Things that are substantial have substance, right? Like we have that kind of vocabulary, but we don't connect the word glory with that part of our English vocabulary. But in the Bible, they're very, very connected. The, Things that are glorious, God most of all has weight, has gravity, should matter to us more than anything. And see, in our relationships, as again, we mentioned briefly with the kids, in our relationships, different people matter to us more than others, right? We will give of ourselves and serve and be patient with some people more than others. Other people's opinions, some of those other people in our lives, their opinion matters to us. And I'm going to guess, it's true for me, and I'm going to guess for all of us, the number of people in our life who we really, really want their approval is probably fairly small. Right? That we actively want their approval, their affirmation of us. Honestly, that, that number is, is not super large. Hopefully it's bigger than zero for everyone in the room, but it's not going to be huge. 
But then I heard another pastor point this out, and I think it's true for me, you know, results may vary, and try it on for size, that even if the number of people in our lives whose approval we really, really want is small, the number of people in our lives who their disapproval we want to avoid is huge. I don't know about you, but when somebody gets up really close to me driving, like kind of starts to tailgate, you find yourself driving just a little bit faster, right? You kind of feel their urgency sort of channel through, like, I, I, I do, I do. Or I just get mad that they're tailgating, right? Like, want to tap on the brake, just kind of you know, back off. Right, I, I don't know who the person is behind me. I may never, ever meet them. I may not be able to see their face through the windshield and my rear view mirror, right? But somehow, I want them to think I'm a decent driver, right? Their opinion of, at least their disapproval would, would, would matter to me. In our casual, everyday interactions, on one level, this is good. It's good to be courteous, right? This is what makes society work, that we care on some level, right? Not to like tick off everybody, but we find ourselves going through life giving weight the opinion, the perspective of, of others, and here's where it gets ugly, more than we really ought to at times, right? Particularly in situations where we have to interact with the person more than once, so at work, maybe we have a particular store we go to regularly and that checker we're seeing on, the, you know, on a regular basis because their shift is when we're shopping. Right? We have neighbors. We want to be on good terms with our neighbors. We have family members, which, whether we want to be on good terms with them or not, they're in our lives, and are going to be in our lives, in all likelihood, around the holidays in a special way, hopefully good special and not other kind of special way. We have people in our lives whose word, whose opinion has weight, matters, has glory for us. But here's the freedom, again, that God would invite us into, is to live our lives in freedom, centered on that, ultimately, God is most glorious, and compared to him, everybody else is taking the second seat, yeah? No matter how much someone may be on our case, or no matter how disappointed that we don't have the approval of someone we desperately want to approve of. God is ultimate glory personified. And his opinion of us matters more than anything. And to the extent that that can come through our brains, down into our hearts, and out into our lives, that is freedom. To see that God is glorious, and we don't need to be afraid of anyone. I'm going to do a little word association, or, you know, concept like, when we get to a point where we're really wrapped up in what another person thinks of us, and, and again, let's Think about the, the, the relatively unhealthy ways of that, right? What are some of the things that either we or we've seen other people do? What are some of the effects of that on our lives? Again, it, this isn't confession time, 
We can do that later. This isn't confession time. But when we're really wrapped up in what another person thinks of us, what are some of the ways that that can play out? Hmm? Okay, you get nervous, you get anxious, super careful, maybe filter too much, right? Like you kind of, right? Good. What are some other things that can happen to us if we get really wrapped up in wanting that other person's, again, approval or avoiding the disapproval? You change your behavior and perhaps a little bit change your behavior. Yeah, begin to change our behavior. And in, yeah, exactly what Carol said, in ways we wouldn't have otherwise. And, not always for the best, might I add? Become yeah. a really good driver. Become a really good driver because I want everyone to think the best of me. Yeah, so that would be a more positive effect. Yes. Good. Yeah, what are some of the other ways that we can change? When we're... Like tell lies. Okay, yeah. If I just tell this little lie, it's just going to smooth this over so, and they're going to think better of me. And so, you know, like whether it's my own failure or just trying to make good, right? Yeah. Yeah, totally. Other things that we can do when we're wrapped up in another person's opinion of us? Yeah, right? We start reshuffling our own values, our own priorities. We lose that perspective of what's actually most important, right? And might I suggest, in all these cases, and more we can talk about, among other things, when we're really wrapped up in that other person's opinion, we are not in a position really to love them well. If what matters, what has weight to us, is their opinion rather than what's good in the situation, we're going to have a hard time loving well. In greater or lesser degrees, we actually are going to hurt others, yeah, ultimately through lies or other things. In this story, it was fascinating to me in thinking through, like, okay, what Christmas stories illustrate this idea? God's word, others' word, others, like, what has weight in our lives? And I realized there's a lot of that going on in this story. Because you've got the Magi. You've got these folks from the East. Wise men, you'll see it translated. So the Magi, Magoi in Greek, are the priests of the Zoroastrian religion, which started in Iran. So in all likelihood, these folks are either Persian or maybe from Iraq, uh, who are really into all kinds of things. Um, I'm not going to give you a discourse on the Zoroastrian religion, partially because I'm not an expert, partially because it doesn't really need to detain us here. But they're not Jews. Magic and a bunch of things that they're doing are actually forbidden to God's people. By the way, so is astrology, studying the stars in this way to tell the future is actually forbidden to God's people. And yet these people, through whatever small, apparently, exposure they've had to God's work through his people, the Jews, and their astrology, come to the conclusion that something's about to happen. And among all the, the possible fears, the one that most of the commentators uh, settle on and makes the most sense to me, honestly, is that there was a conjunction of Jupiter-Saturn in the constellation of Pisces. And the short version, because Jupiter has always been sort of the king planet, super bright, right? Uh, Saturn has this idea of um, 
Westlands, and then Pisces is associated with the last days, and so it would have been a kind of a no-brainer for anyone who's studying astrology. And indeed, others in the Roman Empire came to the same conclusion that somehow some sort of king in the Westlands, which is in the last days, would emerge, be born, something. But what's unique about these guys is, so they're Zoroastrian, right? They're Persian. That's a long way away from Palestine. But they are so convinced, they're so intrigued by this that they're willing to put more weight on the possibility of meeting this new king than what their other fellow Zoroastrian clergy are going to think of them. Right? They're putting more weight on the possibility that something extraordinary is happening and we've just got to be there than on the money that they're spending and the time that they're taking to do this thing, this job. They're putting enormous weight on this possibility of seeing what's happening. And so they, they go, as you would expect, to Jerusalem. That's where the center of Jewish religion is. They're expecting everyone there to be as excited as they are. And they find out no one's paying attention because they're Jews and they're not doing astrology in part. But nonetheless, they're not paying attention. And so they start asking questions, but suddenly Herod's paying attention because, well, if there's anything about Herod and where he puts his weight, and we can fall into the same trap too, of where's his weight going? Uh, yeah, exactly, on himself. Herod is most of all about me, 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 a little side of me, it's more me. Yeah, and a little bit of no revolutions chimed in, John. Yes, exactly, right? His power continuing. And so I, there was a joke, and it's a little wordplay in Greek. It was better to be Herod's pig than his son, because he is Jewish and he's not eating pork. He did, however, kill three of his own sons because they got a little too popular. And they were, he was worried that his son might give it ideas of offing dad, and so he pulled the trigger first, pretty much literally. He, he killed one of his wives for the same reason, by the way and a bunch of other people over time. Herod is fully invested in his own glory, his own weight, his own gravitas. He matters more than anything, so much so that when the Magi come and, hey, this, this thing happening, and the scribes and religious leaders chime in and, oh yeah, the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem, Herod puts so much weight on his own opinion of himself that he figures if he can just kill a bunch of kids if you read ahead in the story, He'll stop God. And on forehead. <laughs> and on forehead, exactly. See, we can be more interactive. We're worshiping in person. We can talk to each other. There's this thing called dialogue. It's great. Feel free to just keep it up. There's, there's Yeah, whenever somebody tries to stop God, it never goes well. Yeah, no, it really doesn't. And yet we, in our own ways, sometimes do the same thing. In the more subtle way that the religious teachers, and this is exactly the other major character in this part of the story. So what's going on with these people? That they know their scripture well enough that when a question comes up about where the Messiah is going to be born, they can spit it out 
it doesn't seem like this is not going to take a long time. And indeed, what we know from first, gen, first century Judaism, uh, this was a common reading of this particular verse. Oh, Bethlehem, city of David. That's, that's, that's where the Messiah will be born. They don't have to reach very far for the answer, but at least from this story, as Matthew tells it, do any of them even bother to walk the six miles from Jerusalem to Bethlehem to even find out if this might be true? Nope. No, exactly. And how often? We may not give a ton of weight to a particular person, and we may not give, hopefully, as much weight to ourselves as Herod does. Well, does in this story. See, back and forth, dialogue, this is great, we can do this. But so often, isn't it so, so easy to see something in God's Word and just move on? without the minor inconvenience of a short trip to see if maybe this invitation he's giving us is maybe, maybe, a thing. No, he, he might want to be in on. Yeah. And how much History might have worked differently on if they had. Friends, we in this Christmas season, God's glory, both in the sense of you know, shiny thing that attracts our attention, but also in just how central He is to, and ought to be to us, is on full display. Is on full display, along with all the distractions of the world, on full display. Let this be a season where we take this truth that God is glorious, that He does have, whether we recognize it or not, have ultimate weights in our lives and in the universe, and use it to bring us freedom. So here, here's here's the way this can work for us. Just as reminding ourselves that God is great and sovereign and in control frees us to not have to be in control, and when things aren't working out the way we want them to, like screens going up in the middle and distracting us all, right? Right. When things don't work the way we want them to work, we can just like, look, God's sovereign. This isn't a surprise to Him. We're all okay. And right, so God's greatness, His sovereignty, frees us to just relax. As we heard last week, God's grace frees us to not need to prove ourselves. If God has accepted us, knowing everything about us, including the stuff that we don't even know, and he's welcomed us in, why do we need to prove ourselves to ourselves or anyone else? And if God is ultimately glorious, if he has more weight than anything else in the universe, then Everything else in comparison is, at most, like some little feather. In reality, not that it will feel that way always, right? But here's the thing we can do. 
when we're about to have to have a hard conversation, I do this, I'm growing in this, just picture the person that you know there's just there's gotta be a hard, a difficult conversation for whatever panoply of reasons. Just in your mind, take a minute, picture the glorious God of the universe. Throw in all the light you want here for the moment, right? But the one who created the galaxies, flung them out into space, he just is everything. Infinitely immense. And then that person that's going to be really hard to have that conversation with, how big are they? Bring yourself back to just the proper proportions of existence. And be free to be loving, not afraid, in that conversation. After somebody's criticized you, right? It comes, slings and arrows come our way. Words do, in fact, hurt us. Unlike popular saying. <laughs> yes, unlike popular saying. That's exactly the way we What does God say about you? And versus what that person is saying about you. And let the glorious God's opinion of you, he made you and crafted you for a purpose. He loves you, he died for you, he's with you. The promise is the Holy Spirit will indwell and fill you. God's opinion matters more and ought to matter more than anyone else's, which doesn't mean we don't take other people seriously. Because that's not loving. But their opinion, their critique, number one, it's always going to have some kernel of truth, both about us and about the other person, right? Yeah? And doesn't have the weight that God's opinion of us. Here's one. If an opportunity for a spiritual conversation comes up with a neighbor or a coworker, or a friend or family member, I don't know about you, but I have my moments all too often of just like, you know what, do I really want to go there? Do I really want to bring up the name of Jesus right now? Because, because I could. There, there's an opening here, right? But I have my moments, and again, they're far more frequent than they ought to be, of fear what that other person is going to say, how they're going to react. But look, Jesus is far more glorious, weighs far more, matters to me more, even than whoever this other person is. And if I can speak about him and this person, how great would that be? And ultimately, folks, if you have any question about God, who matters, the God who is glorious. Look to Jesus. And even look at what he did with his own glory. This is what we celebrate at Christmas, that Jesus, God, the eternal Son, who is infinitely glorious, at Christmas we celebrate that he let go of that glory. He became an embryo and a baby and was born in really kind of atrocious circumstances in some ways, right? Cold, not properly cared for. It had to 
be laid in a manger, a feeding trough, born to a peasant craftsman couple grew up in a backwater province, Galilee, and then a backwater town of the backwater province, Nazareth. And then at the end of his life, was willing to let himself be treated like a criminal at an utterly unjust kangaroo court with trumped-up evidence, literally stripped of his clothing, utterly naked and ashamed on a cross. Jesus let go of his glory, of his gravitas, so that you and I can share his glory. To make us like That's not wonderful. I don't know what is. If that isn't marvelous and a glory, a word that should have weight with us, I don't know anything else. And that's the truth of Christmas that can free us to fear 